Acts 17 is part of Paul's second missionary journey. And so he and Silas, um, Paul will call Silas in the text we're in this morning, Silvanus, but Silas in Luke's uh, version of Acts. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy had left what's modern-day Turkey, you remember we talked about, and they went across this territory they had initially had no intentions of going to, but God closed some other doors. Paul had a vision of a guy in Macedonia, and so they set sail across the Aegean Sea for Macedonia, and they hit that first city, Philippi, had some trouble, and some converts headed down the road to that next major city of Thessalonica. And Remember, this was an important and strategic city. Thessalonica in its day was big, a couple hundred thousand people, so really by ancient standards it was a huge city. And it was also strategic because it was on a major highway or trading route, and it was a seaport. So it was a rich place, a lot of people came and went. It was also the uh, capital of the Roman colony of Macedonia, so it was a big, important city. And then while he was there, Paul did what he usually did. He went to a synagogue and he preached to the Jews that there was a new covenant. That old covenant they'd been in with God, it was over. There was a new covenant he informed them about. Some Jews believed and also some Gentiles believed. And there's the rub. Of course, the Jews weren't sure about those dirty, testy Gentiles coming into anything God was a part of. So there's immediate persecution and opposition. And so the church in this city in Thessalonica was born in the midst of opposition and persecution. So much so that Paul's got to flee. In fact, the church there asks him, please, would you go? So he does, heads down the road, ends up at Athens briefly, and then in Corinth. And we assume about 51 AD, this is probably not the earliest. We think Galatians is the first letter he wrote, but 1 Thessalonians, probably the second one he wrote, about 51 AD from Corinth. Now, uh, we will start First Thessalonians this morning. We won't get very far, about three verses. You know, the trouble uh, with teaching through any of this stuff is you, it's deep. And you start looking and you think, I'm going to start with ten verses and know I better go to five and know I better go to three, you know, and stay within a 30 or 40 minute framework. So this morning, only the first three verses. First Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3. If you've got your Bible, feel free to turn there. That's where we'll be parked. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Uh, Paul wrote 13 letters, and they all start with kind of this semi-formal introduction. If you were a, a Greek person, a Greek citizen, or Greek background in Paul's day, you would have started a letter sort of like this. You'd have used a word similar to Paul's grace, a little different, and it would just mean greetings. If you were Hebrew in Paul's day, you'd have started your letter a little different with the word with peace. So, greetings to you if you're from the Roman Greek world, or peace to you if you're from the Hebrew world. Paul takes both of those and sticks them together. He actually changes the Greek word a little bit to mean grace now, not just greetings. But grace to you and peace, that's his semi-formal introduction to the Thessalonians. He combines both thoughts. He's actually writing to a church now, of course, in a city that has both Jewish, Hebrew, and Gentile believers. So, grace to you and peace. Uh, grace and peace, we need to park on this theme, this, these two words, this phrase, for just a minute. Um, 
grace. Uh, what is grace? What is that about? How is Paul using it here? And what does that mean for us, grace? Uh, Bill had a great song to open us up with. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. Uh, grace, translated from the Greek, is charis. Uh, we would use the English word charity. comes from that same word. We, but grace, as it's used here, it means something that... Uh, causes joy. It's typically the object of joy or affection. It's something that has your favor. If, if we say we're saved by God's grace, we mean that we have favor we didn't work for. We enjoy this benefit or this favor or this standing, this privilege in God that we didn't do anything about. We're the object of someone else's affection. That's God's grace. Paul says to those troubled Christians that he just left in that city, As soon as he starts talking to them, he says, you have God's grace. And this theme about grace and peace, Paul opens all of his 13 letters with these same words. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, uh, why is this important? Why does Paul start with every letter, grace to you and peace? There must be some, some purpose behind this. There must be some reason why all of his letters start with the same theme. I think it goes something like this. Most of us, most of our lives are trying to work for acceptance and favor, for grace. Uh, We come, you know, all of us know, in the dark corners of our hearts, so to speak, we all know that something's not right in us, that we're not what we should be. We have this, this sense that there's something shameful about us, something deficient about us, and of course there is, but... We don't want to live there. We don't want to stay there. We we don't want to think that's all we are. We want to be approved. We want to be known and loved. It's our deepest need. It's our deepest desire. Um, Others have said, you know, we have inside us a God-shaped vacuum. We know that we're meant to be more than we are. So most of us, Christians included, unfortunately, most of us, most of our lives are looking for grace. We're looking for this place or this person or this opportunity in which we feel our shame has been covered and we're now fully known and fully loved. We're accepted. We are the object of someone else's delight. We stand in their grace. You know, and ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden from our first parents, all of us are born with this sense of shame and deficiency. And so our natural bent all our lives is to try to find acceptance. And most of us go about this in all kinds of ways. We do... uh, you, you try to impress other people. You know, you try and gain other people's favor by being smart or by being successful or any one of a number of things. Sometimes we, we cover up that sense of shame by alcohol, sex, drugs, you name it. But it's all the same thing. It's the sense that we're not what we should be and we want to be more. We want to be known and loved and affirmed. Well, Paul says here right from the start that these Christians stand in God's grace. These folks who trusted Christ, even in the face of opposition, Paul says, first thing when he talks to them, he says, you stand in, you have God's grace, His favor. You are the apple of His eye. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. You know, this is, the, this is our crying need, and this is where Paul starts when he writes them. And when God speaks to us through this letter today, he says, you start as those in Christ, as those with God the Father, in Christ the Son, you start in this position of being the apple of God's eye, being delighted in over by your Father. 
Listen to this passage out of Zephaniah 3. When we studied through the Minor Prophets years ago, we spent some time on this. You could uh, hear this online, I think. This is, to me, an incredible passage in any part of the Bible, but especially in the Old Testament. And not only that, but in one of the Minor Prophets. Most of us don't read the Prophets because it's kind of doom and gloom quite a bit. It's a little disconnected. But out of Zephaniah, God talked about His disposition that He would have towards Israel in a future day. And he said this in Zephaniah 3.14, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now this is an overwhelming passage to me. If we picture God uh, from the world's perspective, typically a cosmic killjoy, a guy with a long white beard who's somewhat stern paternal figure, you know what I mean? Or uh, This is God pictured as this doting father who is rejoicing over you, over people like you and me, with shouts of joy. This is mind-blowing to me. I mean, take the most affectionate father you can imagine and then multiply that by God's eternality and omnipotence, and that's God rejoicing over His people. Well, this kind of favor that God said Israel will yet experience, that's where you and I start as those now alive in Christ. That's where we start with God our Father. So the first words out of Paul's mouth to this new church is that you have, you stand, you start in God's favor. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. There's nothing that separates you from God your Father. It's joy and grace. That's a good place to start. And he goes on to say, you've also got God's peace. Uh, the Greek is what we, irenic, if someone's an irenic personality, someone who tends towards peace. On one hand, this would just mean you're free from war or you're free from strife or conflict. And to people in Thessalonica, this would be meaningful. Because they're, they are persecuted externally where they're living by Jews and the government. So for Paul to say you have peace, freedom from conflict on one level, this would be significant. But... We assume Paul actually means more than that, just freedom from a kind of conflict to the Hebrew thought of peace, that it was shalom. It was this sense of your life is what it should be. Uh, Peace is part of that freedom from conflict. That's significant, but there's more to it. It's that your life is filled up with the kind of quality God wants you to be. So besides standing in God's grace and favor, besides being the object of God's affection, Paul says you're no longer hollow men and women anymore. But your lives now in Christ, they've been filled up to overflow. And you have this wholeness. You have this Hebrew shalom kind of peace where life now, you are what you should be. So you don't have conflict with God anymore. And you guys know, generally, if you talk to people in our culture, the thought that there's anything that keeps us from God, at least at the verbal level, is often entirely missing from our culture because we say, hey, God's a nice guy like us. Uh, God's not holy. He says he is, but we, we say God's not holy. So I'm okay and God's okay. But, you know, within our consciences, we know otherwise. 
We know we're not what we should be inside. And so when Paul says you're at peace with God, we know there's nothing now that keeps us from a free and open relationship between God and us. There's no conflict. And before conversion, before redemption, we experience in Christ, there's conflict. Uh, Juan and I were talking about this last night. But, you know, when you read the New Testament, uh, lost people need a Savior. If you're not lost, you don't need a Savior. There's a billboard on I-70 just west of town that says, no one's lost and no one needs to be found. But if you're lost, you need a Savior. And Jesus says in, through John in John 3.36 that we remain under the wrath of God if we don't believe in His Son. So if I realize there's a conflict and that I'm at odds with God, when God speaks to me and says, there's, we're at peace now, there's no conflict, there's no alienation. You and I, we're, at, we're right with each other because of Christ. This is welcome news to me. Conflict's over. And now my life has been filled up, so I have this full kind of life God always wanted us to have. We've become the men and women in Christ God wants us to be through Christ. We have God's grace and His peace. So, first words to the church, before he says anything else, and he'll say a number of things in the epistle, he'll commend them, he'll challenge them, he'll answer some questions about what happens to people when they die, and do people who die sooner instead of later, do they miss out on Christ's coming? He'll address all that, but before he gets to any of that, he says, God's grace and peace. Grace and peace, joy in life, favor and fullness. That's where you and I start. These aren't things we work towards as Christians. This is the place when you wake up every morning, this is where your life starts in Christ. You've trusted Christ, this is where your life starts. The place I want to park for the remainder of the time is in verse 3. Paul has a phrase he repeats about three things. He says in verse 3, he's remembering, he's bearing in mind their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. There's a holy trinity here of Christian virtues, if you will, faith, hope, and love. And in this epistle, this epistle is bookended by faith, hope and love. So we've got it here in verse 3, but when you go to the end of the epistle, chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Faith, order varies a little bit, but faith, hope, and love. This holy trinity of Christian virtues. You'll see it again in Galatians 5, 5, the hope of righteousness, a faith working through love, most famously, if you've not heard it any place else or remember it, if you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard it out of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul's bringing up this holy trinity. These words are only used together in the New Testament nine times. Two of them are in this epistle in 1 Thessalonians. So these are important themes. The first one, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, what is the work of faith? Or what is work motivated by faith? What does that mean? Paul uses the same phrase again in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. He says, God fulfilled every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So what is a work of faith? And maybe just go back and think for a minute. When you and I trust Christ, we don't do anything more than, or when we're saved, we don't do anything more than trust Him. So Paul says elsewhere we're saved by God's grace through faith. 
Faith is believing what God has said about himself and Christ and us. It's entrusting ourselves to Christ. It's believing the truth about Jesus. It's not working. Jesus makes this clear in John 6. Faith isn't work. Faith is accepting something as it really is. It's trusting Jesus and his work on our behalf. It's not work in itself. But for those who have through faith trusted Christ, this faith, which isn't work, it ends up producing work. You know, if you read James' epistle in James chapter 2, this thing about faith and works is a big deal for James, kind of an Old Testament version of Proverbs, so to speak. Faith and works. But we don't work to be saved. We believe. We exercise, if you will, faith. But that faith that saves us then remains this catalyzing influence in the rest of our life to produce works, works of faith. So Christians are those who are supposed to be characterized by faith on the front end. We trust Christ. We have faith in Christ. But then faith is supposed to become a way of life. We don't, we don't believe once and then it's over. Faith becomes a way of life. You know, Paul said that the just shall live by faith. And we've said elsewhere, it's not just that faith introduces us to life, but it's that faith is a way of life for those who have exercised faith in Christ. It begins a life of faith. Faith is arguably the key word in this epistle. It's used eight times in 1 Thessalonians and five times in 2 Thessalonians. Faith. So then... For the Thessalonians, what is work of faith? What is the work that faith produced in this early church? You know, Paul actually doesn't mention a lot of it, but we know this at least in verse 8. Part of the work of faith was simply sharing the gospel. It was becoming spokesman for Christ because he says there, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. We have no need to say anything to you. So whatever else this looked like for them, faith had produced the work of evangelism, of proclaiming the gospel. Now, for you and I today, I, I don't know what for sure this looks like for you. What would a faith work look like for you or me today? On one hand, it might be just the same thing that Paul mentions there in verse 8 for them. Uh, Us sharing the gospel, Christians sharing the gospel, the message about Christ, our need, his provision, that's a work of faith. When you share the gospel with a friend or a relative or someone you meet, that is, Paul says, a work of faith, or should be. You know, but this can become, uh, this can go down right where you and I live too, to the very mundane things as well. Um, If I say I've shared the gospel with someone, someone that sounds fairly spiritual and maybe important and we buy that as a work of faith but what about this Uh, how about just serving your family when you don't feel like it because you believe God's called you to serve your family that's a work of faith too or what about doing your homework if you're a student because you understand that's where God has you in life and so you doing your homework that becomes a work of faith you're doing it in a way to honor Christ you're trusting that that's what God wants you to do and you're going to do it to honor him that becomes a work of of faith, giving your time or money to a person or a cause you know God wants you committed to, that's a work of faith. This might look spiritual. It might mean sharing the gospel. That's a good thing. And I don't mean to speak in a way that minimizes that. That's a great thing. But it could look more mundane than that. It might just be doing the things you normally are called to day in and day out, but you're doing it out of faith, motivated with a 
a motivation to please Christ. Those things become works of faith. Faith, or excuse me, the works of faith don't save us, but the faith that saves then begins this life that's supposed to be characterized by work in Christ's name for His honor. So faith should inform and motivate everything that we're doing. So almost anything we do can be considered in that sense work of faith. Paul moves on from work of faith to labor of love. What's the difference between a work of faith and a labor of love? Uh, Labor here has the sense of work to the point of exhaustion. Or it's exertion to the point of fatigue. You know, if I tell you I did a work, it might be something... If I do the dishes, I work. The dishes aren't very hard. But if I say I... uh, cleaned out the garage, I'm thinking that'd take a little bit more work. That's kind of the thought here. Work of faith, good start, but labor of love is labors that are done to the point of exhaustion. Labors that we remain committed to that wear us out in the doing. And think through this for just a little bit. These guys had started working, and again, I find this interesting. These guys are in a hard place at a hard time. And Paul doesn't just say, boy, you've, you've started well, now just stop there. He always exhorts them to keep going. And so he talks about, and he encourages more of the same, your labors of love. Faith starts working. Paul says here, love continues that work. Faith gets things going, but love keeps them going. It takes a motive as strong as love to keep many works going. And the term love here is agape. It's the term, it's the Greek term for love most of us are familiar with. But it's the sense of it's an unconditional love for the benefit of someone else, regardless of what I get out of it. Agape was not a term used a lot in the Greek world, but Christianity and the followers of Christ used it quite a bit more than it had been historically because it's this kind of love. It's, it's love for the benefit of someone else no matter what I get or don't get out of it. So agape love is the kind of love God the Father has for us when he sends Jesus to die for our sins. God actually is honored in the end by that, but it is a self-sacrificing love. And then Jesus' willingness to go to the cross for the benefit of, benefit of his Father That's an agape love too. That's a benefit for his father that's going to cost Jesus dearly. Or Christ on the cross loving us, bearing our sin and our shame, that's agape love. That's something done for our sake, for our benefit, that cost him dearly. Well, this is the kind of love Paul says is motivating them to work incessantly or to the point of exertion or fatigue. Um. I'm convinced that lots of works start out by faith and fail because they're not sustained by the deeper motive of love. And think about this in your own life for a minute. And I would just say briefly, this church was ready to fold up two years ago. There was a leadership meeting and, and uh, I said, guys, I can't keep going. I can't keep doing what I'm doing. And we're looking at each other thinking, well, you know, maybe we'll just have to close up shop. The only reason this church, as far as my perspective, exists today 
is because the guys in that room said, what will happen to two dear little ladies in this church? If this church folds, what will happen to those little ladies? Faith had started the work of the church. But faith didn't keep it going. Love kept it going. So we sit here today because guys in that room looked around at each other and basically said, we just can't bail out on these two women. You know, one had come to Christ through the service of this church and the families in this church and brings along her mother and we're looking at each other thinking, we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know how we're going to change, but we can't give up because we're responsible for somebody. We're responsible for these ladies. So many works start through faith and they fail because they're not motivated in the end by love. It's love that is the sustaining motivation that will keep some things going when faith is given up, when faith has given out. If you and I don't have at the core of our being, at the foundation of who and what we are, a motivation of faith, we will probably never be involved in anything great in Christ's kingdom. Ever. You know, all the enemy's got to do is oppose you for a while, wear out your enthusiasm, knock you around a little bit, give you a little bit of defeat, and you'll give up. But if you're motivated by love, you'll keep going because then it's not about you, it's about somebody else. So then you say at the end of the day, I'm not free to stop because I've, I'm committed. I've got to serve somebody else. I'm responsible for them. So I'm not free to stop. If we are easily offended, if we focus on what's in a thing for us, if we can't look past the warts on our family's faces and our friends' faces and the people we go to church with, and if we can't look past the hatred and the opposition of those who don't like us, we will not be involved in the things God's doing in this world because it takes more than starting a thing well to be part of what God's doing. Jesus could have lived his whole life up to the crucifixion and lived well and said, Dad, I've changed my mind. And we'd be in trouble. And we can start all kinds of works by faith and say at some point, well, you know, the fun's gone. It's not what I thought it'd be, so I'm going to stop. Labors of love, love that works itself to exhaustion, that doesn't give up, that's what these guys were practicing. And if you and I want to be involved in anything of importance in God's kingdom in this world, that's got to be your underlying motivation. That with God the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, we're saying to ourselves and each other, we're not just going to be motivated to work by faith, that's a great start, but we're going to be motivated by love, a love that doesn't give up, a love that works itself to the point of exhaustion. If if you're not willing to do that... you can kiss goodbye the thoughts of being involved in significant things for Christ. Now, again, if you're thinking back, Christians are being persecuted, labors of love sounds kind of romantic. What does that look like for you and I? What does working to the point of exhaustion look like for you and I? Well, how about serving your kids when they give no thanks in return? That's a labor of love, I think. How about honoring your parents when they're only demanding more of the same? That could be a labor of love. How about, how about helping friends with the same problem again and again and again and again? That, 
That can be a labor of love. Now, it may be more strenuous. I mean, literally, we, some of us may find ourselves on the mission field. We may find ourselves involved in church plants. Spiritual service counts. It could be a hundred things. But faith is a great start. But it's love that allows us to continue laboring when faith is kind of petered out. Paul says, you guys are doing it. You're laboring because you're motivated by love. You're wearing yourself out in the service of Christ because love is your motivation. And then the last of this holy trinity he mentions, he says, bearing in mind your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two words here and two thoughts. Steadfast, um, it's more than patience. Um, you know, if you and I are waiting for the bus, we stand on the corner and we wait for the bus. Maybe we're pa- Maybe it's late. We're patient. That's not the, the thought here. The thought is courageous endurance. Courageous endurance. For hope, and hope, you know biblically, hope is not the way we use it. Hope is not, I hope it will be sunny tomorrow. Hope is a certain future event that has simply not occurred yet. Hope is a certain future event that has simply not occurred yet. In the short time Paul was in this city, these guys knew something, and it was this. That Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, he's coming back. Because this comes up later in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians again. He's coming back. This is their hope. And he'll mention this again at the end of chapter 1. What's their hope? The return of Christ. I don't know many Christians today who will tell you that the return of Christ is a fixed hope in their life. Not many. And even if you're a dispensational or whatever your eschatology is and you believe the rapture could occur at any time or the second coming could occur at any time, I don't know many people for whom this is a guiding light in their life, the hope of Christ's return. But it's supposed to be. And I think at one level it's because in our world, in our time, in our culture, at one level we have things pretty easy. These guys didn't. While materially they were in a wealthy place for their day, they were in opposition. They were facing opposition. And, you know, the early church and the church around the world today, we're often ignorant of this, but there are more martyrs being martyred today in the name of Christ than at any time in the history of the world. And there have been for the last several decades. Um, but if life for us is a little cushy here, I'm comfortable, and I confess this is true of me more often than I'd like to tell you, you know, give me a good meal in my dining room with the kids around the table. I'm happy. To me, that's a little slice of heaven on earth, and I'm happy. But you know, if my life bottoms out, if I lose my kids, if I'm Job, lose my kids, my wife turns from the sweet, angelic individual she is now to a harpy. You know, what? what's my view then? Well, then I'm looking for something in the future. Right? I'm looking for a future hope. Well, these guys, life was tough. And Paul says they have a steadfast hope that they've locked their eyes on the return of Christ. And it's this hope that is sustaining them. Works of faith, great. Love is motivating them to continue in that work. But also, so is the certainty of their union with Christ when he returns to the earth. So when they're worn out, and guys, sometimes this is true for you and I. Hopefully, maybe you already have. You'll face those situations in life in which you know the only reason you're going to continue to do right 
or you're going to refuse to do wrong is because you know you're going to face Christ face to face and eye to eye. And that, that can be, it cuts both ways, actually, doesn't it? When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it cuts two ways. Jesus looks at us, says, this is your life. Some of it burns up. That's the painful part. Didn't measure up to Christ's call on us or to a work of faith or a labor of love. It burns up. Paul says we suffer loss. Jesus says, that's not what I'm looking for. That's not the point, though, of course. It is because that reveals truth. But what he's really after, too, is to reward us for faithful service. So the things that survive that fiery trial of Christ's vision of our life, he rewards us for. And that's the thought here. Christ's coming for them means reward. It means the end of painful opposition and persecution. It means union with Christ, the old passed away, the new present, and it means reward at His side with Him. You know, at this, what I call the eternal party. You know, where there's fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. That's your future and mine. Psalm 16 says. So for these guys in the face of opposition, hard times, Jesus says through Paul, they've been sustained through a steadfast, a courageous perseverance as they fix their eyes on the hope, the certain future return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And when times for you and I get bad, we need to remember, and you can think of this two ways. You can think Christ is going to return to the earth. Maybe in my lifetime I want to be ready. That's great. I think that's what they were doing. You can also say to yourself, I know one day I'm going to see Jesus face to face. And he's going to weigh my life. And because that's true, I want to make sure I live in a way now that I don't regret then. That's appropriate too. That's a certain future hope. Because Jesus is going to reward you for those things you do for his name and for his sake. That's a certain future hope. And God wants us to have this star in the sky, if you will, this fixed point that we look to in the future and we know no matter what successes or failures we have here, we know of something in the future we can hang our hat on that makes everything else okay. And that's what they had. This steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope. This holy trinity of Christian virtues. Grace and peace start us out. Faith, love, and hope get us home. Let me close with this. Short story. Um, School just started again. And so this means that my little neighbor, Josh, is walking to school every morning. And uh, Josh is first or second grade, so he's at school all day. And this is the picture. I look out my window. I'm getting my work done. And Josh, hand in hand with one or both of his parents, is toddling down the street going to school. He's got his backpack on. And strapped to his backpack is his lunch pail. Josh is literally the only son of his parents. And believe me, they love him and they delight in him and he knows it. And his experience every day is he wakes up loved and delighted in by his parents. And then he goes to school and his parents have loved on him, fed him breakfast. They send him to school with a backpack full of school stuff and with a lunch pail. So loved by his parents in the morning, first thing, heads off to school. He's got a day at school and he's prepared. He's got his backpack and he's got his lunch pail. And I'm sure Josh has some up and down days at school, like all of us have up and down days. But you know what? The little feller's prepared. And I imagine when he sits down at lunch every day, takes that lunch out, made by mom and dad at home, eating that lunch. You know, I suspect he's thinking this. Lunch is pretty good. Got a little bit of the afternoon left. And then mom and dad will come and pick me up at the end of the day. See? His day starts. Grace and peace. 
Good breakfast. Couldn't hurt anything. Goes to school, well prepared. That lunch pail, for me, just like faith, hope, and love. Gets him going through the rest of the day. And he knows, mom and dad, he has no question about this, they'll be there at the end of the school day to take him home. That sounds a little bit to me like what God's saying to you and I through Paul in 1 Thessalonians. You start out, you don't work for this. You inherit in Christ grace and peace. And God loads your little backpack and he fills your little lunchbox with faith, hope, and love. You start with grace and peace. It's a good place to start. It's faith, hope, and love that will get you through the day. Let's pray. Lord, we are thrilled that we belong to you. You're the best dad in the universe. Lord Jesus, you're the only one who could have saved us. And at the cost to yourself, you took on our sin and our shame so that you could pour out your grace and your love, your mercy and your peace on us so that we can stand before God the Father unashamed, stand upright in his presence, thrilled to be his sons and daughters by your doing. Lord, thanks that it's faith in you that saves, no work of our own. I pray for anybody here who's struggling, Lord, who perhaps doesn't know you yet, that they would simply embrace you and accept the free gift of eternal life, Lord Jesus, you offer us. Lord, help us not to live as those who are laboring for favor, but as those who have it. Help us to be motivated by this holy trinity of faith and hope and love, Lord, so that we can fulfill your good call on all our life and see you unashamed at your return. In Jesus' name, amen.